Chapter 13 on the systematic change required in the global food system. Royale with cheese, what they call a Big Mac. Jules Winfield, Pulp Fiction. Heinz von Forster said that truth is the invention of a liar. The Austrian-American scientist and philosopher was one of the principal founding thinkers in the field of cybernetics, the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine, essentially a study of the systematic nature of things, including ourselves and the world we construct around us. As a simple reflection, who creates the reality or world that we live in? Where does the system that governs the basic needs of a human being, including how we live, move and eat, come from? It may be alarming to realise the often random, emergent events that occur to create what we may believe to be well-planned, scientific, structured systems, such as the global food system. The prefix sci, as in science, means to separate, and such a reductionist approach to the hard sciences, where things are separated into their component parts, has been highly successful. Yet von Forster believed that a reductionist approach to a living system spelled disaster. What I am highlighting here is that the global food system is a living system, but that as a society we have accepted certain scientific results as global truths. As we discussed in the first chapter of part 3, chapter 7 on the changing patterns of mobility worldwide, personal habits have a massive impact at the societal level. This probably holds most true for the move and fuel elements of the SEP model. The global food system is designed for us, but to a large extent we can say that it is designed by us in the choices that we make, with those needs satisfied by food companies and system actors worldwide. And we are getting sicker as a society, and fatter. It is not just childhood obesity rates that are rising, as combated by Michelle Obama and others. Worldwide obesity has nearly doubled since 1980. In 2008, more than 1.4 billion adults were overweight, and more than 500 million of those were obese, corresponding to 35% of all adults being overweight and 11% obese. Researchers at the London School of Economics and the ESE Business School found a positive correlation between rising obesity levels and globalisation, specifically the social aspect of globalisation on the three primary outcomes of obesity, Calorie intake and grams of fat. Is globicity a byproduct of our advancing society? So why do we seem to be regressing? The changing patterns of mobility and related factors like urban design no doubt have an impact, but the global truths of the food system may also play a part. Nina Teschols, author of The Big Fat Surprise, challenged one such truth of the global food system namely the link between saturated fat and heart disease. She traces the history that resulted in the anti-fat crusade, a defining feature of the global food system for over a generation. She believes that nutrition policy has been derailed over the past 50 years by, in her words, a mixture of personal ambition, bad science, politics and bias. One consequence of cutting out fat has been a marked increase in carbohydrates, at least 25% more since the early 1970s, while saturated fat has dropped 11% in the same period. As we covered in the preceding chapter, 
Carbohydrate is a sugar, and a broader view on carbohydrates in terms of the glycemic index allows us to make a more informed choice for energy and corresponding insulin levels. Glucose causes the body to release insulin, which is very efficient at storing fat. Research from Teshals and others have raised an awareness in recent years of the dangers of our society's addiction to sugar. It may be that the big sugar companies today will become the next generation of big tobacco, under increasing public pressure and looking for transformation amid questions regarding their license to operate. The World Health Organization in 2014 is currently reviewing draft guidelines on limiting added sugar to 5% of daily calories, around 6 teaspoons, equivalent to one can of Coke. Recognising the increasing pressure, Coca-Cola has acquired smoothie drinks companies in recent years for which the public perception is closer to one of health, at the same time as advertising the importance of physical movement. Yet the sugar in smoothie drinks is just as damaging to our health as the sugar in a carbonated drink. However, Teshals believes that food companies were just following the guidelines laid down to them. Up until 1999, the American Heart Association was still advising Americans to reach for soft drinks, and in 2001 was still recommending high sugar snacks instead of fatty foods. Coca-Cola has now released Coca-Cola Life, complete with natural-looking green packaging, flavoured with stevia, a natural sweetener that has half the sugar and calories of a regular Coke. It is symptomatic of the accelerated action now being taken by food companies. Mars recently cut the size of its Mars and Snickers bars to meet a calorie commitment, without cutting price, while Nestle says it cut the overall sugar content of its products by 30% between 2001 and 2011. Many nutrition experts believe that sugar reduction by stealth, gradually reducing content over time so that the consumer will not miss the taste, is the best strategy and one that was followed successfully regarding salt consumption in the UK. The Food Standards Agency there has overseen a 30% reduction in added salt to processed food in the past decade. The other main result of our distrust of saturated animal fat has been the increase in consumption of vegetable oils. Yet we now broadly recognise the dangers of such oils, including the manufacturing process of hydrogenation as a reason for natural butter being a much healthier option as compared to margarine. The demonisation of saturated fat can be traced back to the 1950s, to a man named Ansel Benjamin Keyes, a scientist at the University of Minnesota. Dr Keyes was, according to Teshals, formidably persuasive and a relentless champion of the idea that saturated fats raise cholesterol and as a result cause heart attacks. The seven-country study that he conducted on nearly 13,000 men in the United States, Japan and Europe demonstrated that heart disease could be linked to poor nutrition. But critics have pointed out that Dr. Keyes violated several basic scientific norms in his study. These include selecting only those countries likely to prove his thesis and omitting countries such as France and Switzerland where high-fat diets were the norm. Furthermore, the study's star subjects from Crete, who lived long lives but consumed little meat and cheese, were sampled during Lent, a time of fasting from such foods, and only a very small sample of a few dozen men was taken. A few years later, Dr Keyes landed a position on the Nutrition Committee of the American Heart Association, 
whose guidelines are considered the gold standard, and the fate of saturated fat was sealed. Since then, momentum, not to mention energy and investment, has swung behind reinforcing this hypothesis. What is good for us is good for the planet. So what should we be eating? More butter, cheese and meat as part of a healthy, balanced diet, according to the research by Teshols and a growing number of nutritionists worldwide. Meat in particular has come under the microscope in the past few years. For example, the paleo community advocates a diet that better resembles the diets of our ancestors in the Paleolithic era, which ended around 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture and domestication of animals. They argue that humans have been unable to adapt to modern foods such as dairy, grains, legumes and processed food. Instead, they eat a diet rich in animal protein, fewer carbohydrates and more fat. Non-starchy fruit, vegetables and nuts provide the further staple of the diet together with meat and fish. Although it may offer some benefit over a typical processed food diet, Dr David Katz, whose research we highlighted in the previous chapter, argues that it's provided a convenient banner for eating more meat of any type, often poor quality processed or grain-fed beef that would not have been available to our ancestors. And so the quality of the meat is a key factor. Grass-fed beef contains many more valuable nutrients such as omega-3 and 6 fats than its grain-fed counterpart. Meat of the right type is beneficial for health, but just as with any element of diet, balance is required. In a recent BBC Horizon documentary, a diet characterised by a high daily intake of red meat was shown to have a significant increase on weight and cholesterol. The planetary repercussions of a high meat diet will be discussed later, another example of our own and the planet's health being inextricably linked. Katz also believes it unlikely to expect any rigorous long-term studies for finding the best diet that preclude bias. In his work on different aspects of health, he believes that 80% of chronic disease in today's world can be eliminated by simply applying knowledge already at our disposal. As an example, 60% of all type 2 diabetes cases worldwide, an exploding pandemic, can be linked to lifestyle factors. And our lifestyle factors are a symptom of how we conceive the modern age. In several parts of Sustaining Executive Performance, we have highlighted historical cases and ancient wisdom. From Decobertan's views on education to Robert Owen's approach to work, with ancient Chinese and Greek philosophy in between. In an attempt to show that the modern world does not always have all the answers. We may also understand that the burning questions or issues of the day are not unique to our age. To the British Medical Journal editorial of over a century ago talking of the hurried nature of modern life affecting sleep quality, we may add Lebanese and Diderot, 17th and 18th century philosophers who complained of the information overload of the day. Sometimes our actions to progress cause us to regress. The post-World War II move toward making a car-friendly city of Copenhagen and ripping up the cycling infrastructure only to replace it 30 years later as an example. My home city of Glasgow has ever lamented the removal of the city tram system and replacement of the old tenement blocks by high-rise towers. In our quest for advancement, we don't always get it right. I'm not advocating for a rejection of all things modern, but what is the mix of the old and the new required for a sustainable future?
An awareness of our basic human need as part of a journey toward a sustainable leader, thereby connecting the three levels of the triple lens, individual, enterprise, society, may help us uncover this balance. The post-war era of the 1950s gave us many aspects of modern life, including the birth of advertising so vividly reproduced by the TV series Mad Men, a reorientation of the female beauty industry and global growth of Christian Dior's new look, and the invention of supermarkets. Supermarkets gave us a step-changed benefit in terms of choice, availability and convenience, yet it fundamentally altered local production systems and transportation around the world. Furthermore, quality has not always been guaranteed, and local markets and locally grown food have made a comeback in the past 10 to 20 years. Food transportation has a massive effect on the environment with the result that we have the convenience of seasonal foods during all seasons. A little-known international treaty signed in 1944 to help the fledgling airline industry means that fuel for international travel and transport of goods, including food, is exempt from taxis, unlike trucks, cars and buses. So tucking into a breakfast comprised of ingredients from the four corners of the earth is the norm. Growing public awareness of local sourcing has helped push back on this impact, with greater transparency and traceability now evident in the food we buy, helping food standards and local economies as well as minimising environmental impact. A key objective of upmarket restaurants to focus on produce from their local larder and connecting deeply with the local environment has been replicated by supermarket schemes such as Kilometre Zero in Catalan supermarket Bonprel, which includes a whole range of produce grown only in Catalonia. Taking local sourcing even further, there may be a future whereby we grow more of our own food. Future scenarios around the sustainable city theme, particularly in the context of high-rise buildings, have looked at such self-sustaining production. Food waste is another symptom of our modern age. Today we produce about 4 billion metric tonnes of food per annum. Yet due to poor practices in harvesting, storage and transportation, as well as market and consumer wastage, it is estimated that 30 to 50% or 1.2 to 2 billion tonnes of all food produced never reaches a human stomach. Some of these factors may be outside the range of us as consumers, but not all. We have moved towards a society where we find it easy to throw out food. Sell-by days, invented around 40 years ago, are one of the biggest points of contention. Recent reports in UK supermarkets have shown that the CEOs of each of the main supermarkets there, including Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Marks and & Spencer, frequently eat food that is past their sell-by date. They argue for an overhaul of food labelling, pointing out that the 7 million tonnes of food thrown away every year in the UK owes much to shoppers' confusion about best-before, use-by and sell-by dates. Food waste may also be linked to the quantity of food we purchase and eat. The previous chapter looked at how mindless eating results in a practice of overeating and that we will feel full sooner if we simply slow down. Portion sizes vary greatly around the world and I remember being astounded on my first visit to the United States in 2000 by the sizes of meals and supermarket items such as potato chips and carbonated drinks. Eating less by practising better portion control and following initiatives such as My Plate is therefore good for us and good for the planet. 
In general, the professionalisation of the food industry has resulted in cheaper food that some believe is the real reason for soaring obesity levels. Roland Sturm, an economist of the Rand Corporation, notes that Americans spent one-fourth of their disposable income on food in the 1930s, dropping to one-fifth in the 1950s and one-tenth today. In Kenya and Pakistan today, people still spend up to one-half of their income on food. An insatiable, unsustainable present. Much of the debate on improving infrastructure, supply chain and consumer attitudes toward food waste is part of a broader examination of the pressure we are likely to face on a planetary level, where the global food system will be required to feed 9 billion people or more by the year 2050. Much of that pressure comes from an insatiable appetite for meat. It follows that with greater demand and the corresponding supply pressure, cost will increase, leading people to buy cheaper food, often the processed products of lower nutritional value. In Chapter 7, we commented on the lack of physical movement and increase in machine movement as being associated with affluence and progress in a modern world. Likewise, the increasing consumption of animal protein. The growing demand in the emerging economies for meat has placed a tremendous burden on the global food system. Land is required for cattle grazing and the methane emissions from those cattle causes stress on a climate change level. One kilogram of beef requires 15,000 litres of water, around 2,000 gallons per pound, to produce, in the water required for the cow to drink, to grow feed and hay, and to keep stables and farmyards clean. The pressure on the system that comes from these factors was investigated by a 2014 BBC Horizon documentary that calculated that we can eat, sustainably, up to 3.75 ounces or 100 grams of meat per day. Beyond that, and the exponential rise of impacts results in an unsustainable future. At present, 30% of the Earth's usable surface is covered by pasture land for animals, compared with just 4% of the surface used directly to feed humans. The total biomass of livestock is almost double that of the people on the planet and accounts for 5% of carbon dioxide emissions and 40% of methane emissions, a much more potent greenhouse gas. If the amount of meat we produce doubles, a likely current scenario given growing demand in China and India together with overall population growth, livestock would be responsible for half as much climate impact as all the world's cars, lorries and airplanes. So what future are we headed toward if we extend our current choices? Where should the protein come from to sustain an exploding population? Two scenarios that have long been touted as the solution are now approaching the public consciousness. One is manufactured meat, and the other, insects. Insects, as a rich source of protein, fibre and micronutrients such as iron and magnesium, as well as good fats, are eaten in large areas of the world, particularly Asia. Grasshoppers and mealworms are common, yet they remain a niche and often reviled source of food in most Western countries. The World Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations makes the case that insects are key to future food security as the world's population grows, as they are far less carbon intensive than animals and need much less water. A range of entrepreneurs are springing up in an attempt to catch the wave and turn back attitudes to a former age when, for example, insect eating was common in many parts of Europe in the late 1800s. 
Adventurous gourmet chefs are proving that taste and presentation need not be compromised. From a simple natural solution to a man-made one, Professor Mark Post of Maastricht University served the world's first hamburger grown from laboratory-grown meat in 2013. Starting with stem cells extracted from a biopsy of a cow, Post's team grew 20,000 muscle fibres over the course of three months. Each tiny fibre grew in an individual culture well and when ready were removed individually by hand, cut open and straightened out. All the fibres were pressed together to form the hamburger, biologically identical to beef but grown in a lab rather than in a field as part of a cow. The total cost of the project was €250,000, a royal amount, let's say, that even with cheese, Pulp Fiction's Jules Winfield may have been unlikely to find appetising. Post sees the future value of manufacturing meat as a means of addressing the poor efficiency in current meat production methods. He says that 100 grams of vegetable protein are required to produce only about 15 grams of edible animal protein. So a lot of food is used to feed the cows in order to feed ourselves. Methane and water issues are also addressed by the lab burger method. Toward a new modern system. It may be tempting to look at the complexity of issues in the global food system and simply throw in the towel. Yet our eating habits, retaining common sense without overstressing and adding a sprinkling of self-discipline, may help shift the current system to conceive a better vision of modernity. Education and entrepreneurship are critical factors. After moving from Scotland to Spain, I was impacted greatly by actually seeing the animal in the market when shopping for meat. In Britain as a whole, meat is very neatly packaged and even the wording in English doesn't always make it clear where it comes from. Instilling a greater awareness in our children of the wider aspects of food and of the great effort that takes place to ensure it arrives on our plate is a worthy pursuit. The food industry could be used as a magnificent lens for educating young people in so many different fields from supply chain to engineering, ethics, health and politics. The design field has started to pay more attention to the industry, with design schools such as the Eindhoven School of Design developing curricula that looks at the infrastructure around the food industry, but not actually at the food itself. IDEO recently designed the mealtime experience for state schools in the San Francisco area, and other startup companies have looked at providing better food provision for busy professionals in the realisation that our food affects performance. These are positive signs of the right type of modernity, combining lessons from the past with limits of the future. Yet we may easily be seduced by the perceived busyness of modern life and an ill-conceived view of what we need to make our lives better. The rapid growth of Just Eat in Europe, which promotes the tagline Don't Cook, as part of a home delivery service that increases the consumption of convenience foods for their customers is but one example. Indicative of the hunger for a quick fix is the pursuit of a magic bullet diet that ignores the fact that the magic bullet is already there. Mark Van Amerigen, the executive director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, reflected in August 2014 on the remaining 500 days until the end of the Millennium Development Goals. He notes that nutrition didn't even feature in the first set of MDGs 
and that it is often sidelined because there will never be a quick fix, vaccine or formula, for hunger or obesity. Again, the manifestational behaviour at the individual level, which is looking for change overnight, is transferred to the societal level. He is further frustrated by a fractured system. Private companies are doing everything possible to prevent regulation and governments are reluctant to step up. Unilever's Paul Pullman, heading a responsibility-driven company that is also the world's biggest ice cream maker, concurs on the need for a holistic solution, saying that the issue of big sugar is not about who shouts the loudest. So with urgent action required, it falls to us to try to affect some change. If we can change our view to the sustainable leader where patience and consistent practice is built in, we may be able to affect transformation at these broader levels as well. Part of that mindset is to challenge global truths and conventional wisdom. Heinz von Furster placed emphasis on having choice and available alternatives. He said, act always so as to increase the number of choices, which was an ethical imperative of his. If we act by changing and experimenting with our food habits, I think we will open up a number of choices necessary for our future world and closer to the basic needs of that greatest of cybernetic systems, the human being.